I invite you now to take a Bible and to open it to the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, chapter 4. We're going to be reading the entirety of chapter 4, and if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you, you'll find it on page 372. If you haven't been with us, just a little bit by way of context of what we're about to read, a number of people are starting to rebuild a city in Jerusalem that had been destroyed in warfare. It had been destroyed almost 70 years earlier. And so now another generation has come and they have started to rebuild the gates and the wall that entirely surround the city of Jerusalem. Nehemiah chapter 4. Now when Sanballat heard that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? And Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, it'll break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where there are captives. Do not cover their guild and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sinbalad and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were angry, and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come again and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space, behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. And from that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders said behind the whole house of Judah who were building the wall, those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, 
The work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. And so we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also, to the people at that time, said, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes, each kept his weapon at his right hand. And that's where we'll conclude the reading for today. It's, it's quite a vivid picture, an emotional scene. There is so much opposition around them as they're reconstructing the wall that they have to keep their weapons on them at all times. And then not only while they're doing the work do they have to keep their weapons, but at the very end what Nehemiah is saying, we also couldn't send people back home and say, thanks for working all day, now go back home at night. But we needed as many people to sleep here during the night, and we needed to make sure they didn't put their pajamas on but kept their outfit on because they needed to be ready at any time in the night for battle. And that level of protection and security was required while they were doing this construction. It's amazing. It's significant. But the, going a little bit further back from the, the immediacy of this moment, they're here building the walls of Jerusalem because originally, as a people, this was the land of promise. When we start reading in our Bibles much earlier than this, when God decided to call someone to follow after him, named Abraham, and said, I'm going to make of you a nation he told Abraham, I'm also going to give you a land. And it was called the promised land. And it was described as a land flowing with milk and honey. A place that would be a great area to build a nation and to raise your sons and your daughters. And it was something that they longed for and hoped for. But this promised land was also an occupied land. It wasn't empty waiting for development. It was populated and to enter into it was also going to require them to engage all kinds of different people. But even that, there's an intentionality in God's part to give them a land where they would live that was a significant corridor between Africa and Asia and Europe. And in this plot of land, which is why still, thousands and thousands of years later, it is still an area that has so much conflict because <clears throat> it is still a significant piece of property in connecting different parts of the world to each other. So God gave them this land as a promised land because if they resided there and raised their families there, they would interact with people from all over the world. It wasn't their own private development in their way to get away from everybody. It was to be sort of in the center of everything, and it would force them to have to interact with everyone. And positively, if people blessed them, they were, had the opportunity to be a blessing to all the nations. And so this is part of the promise that God wanted them in the middle of it all so they could have an influence on all the different people groups of the day. And as they sought to trade with one another, most of them would have to do it through this plot of land. So it was a great land, and it was an amazing promise of God to give it to them. 
But when they occupied it, therefore, a lot of people already lived there. And they weren't as interested in giving up the promised land (laughs) because it was promising to them too. It was significant to them and their opportunity to trade and interact with other nations or to have a shield of defense if someone were to attack them in war. And for hundreds of years, the people had lived in this land, not always politically free, eventually growing as a nation and having a leader in David that could unite them and then Solomon, who was sort of the the king at the highest point of this nation in this land. But after Solomon, his sons didn't get along and the nation divided. And at different points then in their history, the northern kingdom was conquered and then the southern kingdom was conquered. And what we're reading is people mostly from the southern kingdom who after they'd already been conquered are coming back to the promised land. And they're doing a work of restoration. And so this was a land of promise and now what they're doing is a work of restoration on this land of promise that they were given many, many generations before. Nehemiah had gotten word that the walls, the gates, had been destroyed. And he knew that if the gates were destroyed and the walls were crumbling, everyone who lived there was still vulnerable. They could be taken advantage of, they could be robbed, they could be harmed. And so he wanted to go back to rebuild the walls so that everyone who lived in this city would not be vulnerable again. And so Nehemiah specifically came back to this really, really hard place, a vulnerable situation to help rebuild. And what we're reading about now is just like when they came originally into the promised land, there was a whole bunch of other people there. Even in this work of restoration, there are other people there who are watching. And not everyone is excited that they're coming back. They're not high-fiving them and saying, good job, I'm so glad you're here to rebuild the wall and make the city safe again. No, there are other people who were opposed to the work and opposed to Jerusalem and opposed to the people of God. And so as they see this work happening, they want to find every way they can to stop it. They want to bully them. They want to threaten them. They want to tease them. Kind of what we read at the beginning was sort of one of the leaders, Sanballat, uh, mocking them, being totally sarcastic. What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Can they do it in a day? Even the stones they're using, they're rebuilding the wall, but you can see that the, wall, the stones are marked as burnt from what happened to them 70 years ago. It's just going to happen again. Like They're just making fun of them. And so this land of promise and this work of restoration that they're doing is still surrounded by people who don't have their best interest at heart. But this is a theme throughout Scripture, that God's people are often doing God's work in the presence of enemies. When they came into the promised land, there were a lot of enemies there. When David wrote what is now the most famous psalm, you read the psalm initially and it's the promise that God will lead us to, to restored waters and to green pastures and it sounds like you're kind of all by yourself for the beginning of Psalm 23 but then he also says and he prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies and your brain almost is frustrated like it breaks like everything you were kind of imagining as you were reading Psalm 23 like I'm alone and God is with me, kind of like the hymn, I walk through the garden alone. 
Like you're alone until you get to, well, no, then you also walk through the valley of the shadow of death and in the presence of your enemies, he's still there with you. And all of a sudden you're like, where'd all these other people come from? And they're messing up my, my calm story. But it's a reality. It was there for the people when they came in the Exodus. It was there for David when he wrote Psalm 23. And now for Nehemiah and all the people. Again, they are doing this work of restoration in the presence of enemies. And it's sad that we work in a world that has a lot of vulnerabilities. But then another phenomena of that is often when we enter into this work, we become vulnerable ourselves. If you look out in the world and you still identify who is vulnerable, who is sick, who is scared, who is left out and lost, and your heart grieves that, and you say, I want to do something about that, more often than not, it has to then be the willingness of you or I to become vulnerable with them. In, in a profession, if you're a firefighter and you get the call that the building's on fire and you need to do something, you're hearing the bad news. And now for you to do something about it is usually to put yourself at risk. Same thing with a police officer. In a hospital setting where we bring together our sick and try to treat for them, if you're a nurse or a doctor in a hospital setting, you have to be very careful you don't get sick yourself. You are now stepping into an area where the majority of people are here because something is wrong. And your entrance into it exposes you to a level of risk. And so Nehemiah and all the people who are coming back to restore this city by themselves are now also vulnerable. The city is built to like, as it describes it here in this chapter, it's built to about half its height. And the way Jerusalem sits up on a hill is that from different points around it, you can see what's going on from pretty far away. You can watch and observe how they're building, where they're building if you then have any desire or intention at night to do it harm or during the day. It's great in battle to have the high place, but once you actually have the high place, (laughs) as the high place is not yet established and it's not totally secure, they're vulnerable. Most of their work can be observed by other people. And so as they're being made fun of, as they're being bullied, If you're in a school setting and you know there's just a bully in school picking on a friend of yours and you decide you're going to try to be a friend to the kid who's being picked on, right? Don't you again become vulnerable with them? Like if I do, if I come alongside this person, I might start getting made fun of. I I might start getting picked on. That's what's going on here. Is Nehemiah and those with him willing to become vulnerable in it as they are and as they do their hearts are just grieving all the more. In chapter one, Nehemiah was grieving because of what he heard, but now he's there, he's seeing it, and he's still grieving, and so his prayer in verse four, it's not a prayer most of us when we would open our Bibles would probably pray out loud, but it gives you a sense of what they're dealing with. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where, where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of builders. This is a prayer for justice. 
And while I acknowledge the tension that you or I might read this and say, Nehemiah, it sounds like you're angry. You're, you're praying for them to have what they're trying to do to you to happen to themselves. We do need avenues to express our anger. We need ways to cry out to God and say, this is wrong and they shouldn't be doing it and they shouldn't get away with it if they're doing it. But one of the things about Nehemiah praying it this way is he is simply asking God that in their heart's posture toward them to desire them harm, to thwart their plans. And so Nehemiah is not mostly expressing anger here because he's not praying, God, give me all the tools so I can go attack all the people attacking me. That isn't what he wants. He just wants to work. He wants to build. He wants to reestablish the city. In that opposition, in the bullying and the taunting and the teasing, he doesn't want to become a bully himself. He doesn't want to start teasing them himself. In his grief that this is wrong, he doesn't want to then continue it by just treating them the same way they're treating him. So he's actually funneling this prayer to say, God, I can't change their hearts, and I don't think you sent me here as the military leader to go after them. That's not my calling, but I'm still longing for justice. And so God, can you thwart their plans? Can you make it so that whatever they're trying to do in their anger and in their rage it just comes in on themselves. That's a prayer for justice. That on a nice Sunday morning might uh, sound harsh, but if this Tuesday we hear of a horribly tragic, violent, and senseless incident at a school or at a workplace, most of us will have this kind of a reaction to say, I wish whatever plans were made had been thwarted. I don't know maybe enough to know what all went into it or what the cause was, but our heart's cry is for justice, that there would not be senseless evil and harm. And if we can't change the hearts of everyone who is committed in that way, then we, we do we have to go somewhere with our anger, somewhere with our fear and our frustration and say, God, as many of those plans that can be thwarted, if their hearts can be changed, amen. And if their hearts aren't changed, then please protect as many innocent people as possible. That is a prayer we should all be able to pray. And that's where if we commit to praying the Psalms, like Jesus did, we will in fact say those kinds of prayers fairly often. Because David prayed that way. He knew he was surrounded by enemies. He knew people were after him. And he couldn't just pretend like it didn't exist. Couldn't just sort of wish himself happy thoughts. And so how do you not give in to the evil but also pray against the evil at the same time? It's a challenge to not be overcome by it, but to overcome it with good. And so here it says in verse 9, they prayed to God and they set a guard of protection against them day and night. So prayer then wasn't then this passive 
opportunity for them to say, okay, doesn't matter. We prayed, so we don't have to do anything. They prayed, and they took steps to protect themselves in the work. And again, that's our calling as Christians. To pray for people in times of loss and grief, but to show through our prayers that we're just as committed to working with them in whatever ways we can to make sure things like this don't happen again. There was no choice between the two. And we are in a bit of a political climate where it makes it really hard, even after horrible things happen, to not hear people throw insults across the aisle when someone just says, I'm praying for you. Well, I don't care about your prayers. I only care about the way you vote. Well, I care about the way you vote and I care about praying. Can I care about both those things? <laughs> Can I say in a time of grief that I am so sorry this happened? and also say we need to have increasing conversations about how to prevent this from happening again. We, can we do both? Biblically, we, we must, we should. This is what Nehemiah is doing so long ago. It's one of the amazing things about the Bible is that we're reading on something that happened thousands of years ago, and most of the emotion and tension that it is showing us is something that we encounter just reading the news right here and right now. And so what, ne- what Nehemiah does in organizing all of them is he gives them a call to courage. He invites all the people there to say, we have to work together. We are vulnerable. The wall is only half built. So we're going to set up a system. There's going to be a trumpet sound. And when that trumpet sounds, we need all of you to get to one place at one time because we're under attack. They see us working. They see that we're like spread out. And so here's the system. Half of you are done building and you're protecting. All of you, when the time is needed, are responding to the trumpet call. And you're not putting your pajamas on anymore. You're staying dressed for action. It's a call to courage. Courage assumes that it's a scary situation, that it's hard. But to say, don't allow what is hard and scary to make you not act, to make you run in fear, but stay and work. And this is what Nehemiah is calling to them. And so what we read at the end is that the work does resume. They keep on working. Verse 21, so we labored at the work and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. And I also said to the people that every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. And so this is how they were organized. This is still what we need today. We need men and women following after Christ who are courageous in their faith to work in the presence of our enemies. Not even going after our enemies, still with the posture as originally given that if we can be here and be a blessing to all nations, that is exactly what we want to do. But we will be wise in how we do everything. We want to keep on working and we want to protect because we believe God cares about justice. He cares about bringing health and healing to those who are vulnerable. And so we need courage to do the work. And part of our time in gathered worship is to encourage one another because the opposition is real. Some of the days are so much harder than others. Aren't they? I had an unusually good day this past week, like a day that went so oddly good I couldn't like interpret it I had to travel on Tuesday to Kansas City 
and I had a layover in Nashville, but I wasn't switching planes, so I just got to like move up to the front when everyone else got off the plane. And so I move all the way up to the front, and the cockpit door is open, and I ask the pilot, hey, can I just take a picture for my boys? I think they'd love to see the inside of the cockpit. And so she says, yeah, come on. So I go, and I go to take a picture. She's like, no, sit down. And I'm like, what do you mean? Like, the only seat open is a pilot seat. She's like, no, sit down. I'm allowed to sit in the pilot seat? Okay. So I sat in the pilot seat, and so I'm, you know, snapping a picture for the boys, and I feel like the whole time I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be here. This is, and maybe I shouldn't even be saying this because I don't want to get anyone else in trouble, but um, I'm like, I need to be out of here. She's like, no, no, no. You just, we have 30 minutes till everyone else gets back on the plane, so we just talked to kids for 30 minutes, and then I went on the plane, and someone else flew it. And I'd sent Amy a picture of me at the thing, and then I said, hey, now we're leaving, and she's like, I hope you're not still in that seat. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I know, me too. And uh, I'm not, thankfully. And then I get there, and I get to the car rental place, and they're like, hey, sorry, we don't have the car rental that you reserved, so we're going to upgrade you for free. And I got a Cadillac Escalade for a couple days. It's like the business class upgrade of automobile travel. It's like, I don't even know what to do with this. Like, if I can figure out how to drive it, I have no idea how to park it. So I sent a picture home, and Levi says, he didn't get it. He just took a picture. So I took a picture from the inside while driving to say, no, like I'm driving this thing. I get to the hotel that night. I said, sorry, so we don't have the room you reserved, so we're going to have to upgrade you to the premium room for free. <laughs> what is going on today? Something is wrong with the world that a day is going this well. And I didn't even think about it till yesterday. I was like, why didn't I go get a lottery ticket or something? Like that was, <laughs> if I was ever going to have a good day, that was like a really good one. But I didn't think of that till yesterday. Um, but it was so strange for how many things were going well because no day is really like that. In our normal experience, it is difficult news that we're hearing, a tough relationship, things that are, we need encouragement for. We need, while we're gathered here in worship and while we're lifting up our hearts to God and someone next to you is just angry because of everything that's gone on in the week to say, I don't know that I can process all your anger with you, but yeah, bring your anger to God. This is a safe place to do that. Pray for justice. And whatever ways I can encourage you, because I'm so impressed that you're stepping into this vulnerable place, and I know that means you're vulnerable now too. How can I help you as you've exposed yourself to more risk so that you know whatever you're going through, you're not alone. You have a brother or a sister in faith that's with you. That's what we do when we gather together and have a mind to work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we are in the presence of our enemies, we can say with David that you prepare a table for us. You give us the abundance of provision, a feast of good things, in the moments when we are exposed and we are vulnerable and we need your help, we need encouragement. As it was for the people in Nehemiah's time, the, the, the load, the work ended up getting too much for them. They needed more reinforcement, more help. We acknowledge that that is us on most days of the week. So we do thank you for the gift that corporate worship is, the opportunity that we have to encourage one another so that we don't run from the pain in this world, but we press into the pain, that we 
work towards helping those who are vulnerable with all the risk that that assumes. But we acknowledge we're human, our hearts are frail. We can get burned out. And so we need you and your Holy Spirit to keep refilling us so that we are overflowing with your goodness and your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.